0: The first, degree. First, degree. first degree first degree first degree first degree first degree first degree the first degree you see it on the news you see it on the paper you see it on facebook these things are supposed to happen in movies
1: not in real life she did have an empathetic heart and that's what got her in trouble. She wanted to rescue everybody, and she's seen the best in them, and she's seen a little bit of good in him at times, and that she had this magical thinking that with enough help, he could be that person. He wasn't that person before she met him. He wasn't with her or his parents. He wasn't that way with anybody.
0: All I can say is that if he does get out, what kind of society are we that we see brutal mutation of another human being, and we give them a second chance to come out and be good or whatever. It doesn't work that way. If we let them out, it's a big black mark on our society. Because what does that say about us?
2: Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. She's, again, looking like Steve Jobs over there. Thank you.
3: <laughs> Looking good today. I like a monochrome dark color. Yeah. You know, the only downside now is that I have a very slobbery dog mm. who every time I touch him, there's like a snail trail of slobber yeah. on me. Yep. And it does stand out in the, uh, there's one right there. See, it yeah. does stand out against a dark color. So that's my only downfall at the moment, but otherwise my morning routine has been very streamlined. I love it. You're looking really chic. Thank you. Before we start
2: today's episode, I think I wanted to tell everybody about our Patreon because we have something kind of fun coming up on our Patreon. Do you want to tell our listeners what we have brewing?
3: Yes. So I think everyone's aware of the Patreon perks. For our Patreon, you get an extra episode per week, a fully researched true crime, amazing episode where we deep dive into a case, but also you get other perks too. And we haven't had a two-part episode in a while, but we are having one next week. And we are going to release both parts on our Patreon the same day as we release part one. So if you want the episode early, you are going to be able to get it. If you're already subscribed to our Patreon, you'll get them at the same time. You won't have to wait. Sounds like a brilliant situation to me.
2: Yeah. I remember when we were doing a lot of multi-parter episodes back in the day, people would get so mad that they couldn't binge it. So we're trying to like alleviate that pain for you. So if you want to listen to everything together and have everything tied up in a little bow, uh, it'll be available on Patreon. But if not, of course, it'll be available the next week. So I thought that would be fun. And also Patreon, you get video of Killing Time. So if you want to see yes. our beautiful faces, the whole episode, every week of Killing Time of us shooting the shit, all on
3: patreon and when we say beautiful faces we really mean jared's beautiful face well his beautiful hair really honestly <laughs> it's it's a whole it's a whole vibe that being said though we really do uh we love our content on patreon um yeah. it, we have a little bit more freedom to explore cases we wouldn't normally get to right and you know we just we hope all of you um explore that at some point because we it's a fun situation we have going over there
2: yeah it's where we get to be ourselves. Totally. Um, Okay, so today's date. Are you ready? Give it to me. So it's April 5th. It is Bell Bottoms Day, which I love. Huge fan of Bell Bottoms over here.
3: I had a whole phase in uh, probably 8th grade, ninth grade. It was huge Bell Bottoms on Long Island. It was the time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mine just never left. I've been wearing them since I was like... 13 years
2: old um it is also national raisin and spice bar day which sounds disgusting but also national deep dish pizza day
3: oh my god that sounds amazing
2: and it's also national caramel day there's a lot of good food days deep out dish today. pizza day i need a pizza just cheese please <laughs> anything Oh, my goodness. Jeez, Great please. days. I know. Well, that is enough of that. We're going to get into the case right now. So let's turn down the lights.
3: And turn up your
2: anxiety. Because this could be you.
3: Having someone taken from you in a sudden, violent, and deliberate manner at the hands of another person is one of the cruelest and most soul-crushing things that can happen. And our justice system does what it's supposed to do. The perpetrators of these types of crimes are supposed to see out the rest of their days from behind prison walls. But for so many families whose loved ones have been taken from them, the certainty isn't a comfort they're afforded. It's an emotionally savage thing for people who have already lost so much to have to continue to fight to keep their loved one's killer behind bars in order to protect society from them. And as convicted murderers repeatedly apply for parole over and over, as the law says they're entitled to, the family is traumatized over and over again each and every time. And some families fall apart at the seams under the stress of these circumstances. But others, like the one we'll be talking about today— stuck together and grew stronger with a common goal in mind, keeping a dangerous killer and others like him behind bars. So we begin today's case on October
2: 16th of 2005. It was only seven weeks since Hurricane Katrina wreaked havoc across the Gulf Coast of the United States, killing almost 1,400 people. The Category 5 storm devastated New Orleans, left hundreds of thousands of people homeless across Louisiana, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama, and caused $125 billion worth of damage. In the world of pop music, Gold Digger by Kanye West and Jamie Foxx is in the number one spot, while Shake It Off by Mariah Carrie held steady at number two. And at the box office, The Fog was the top grossing film, which I've literally never even heard of, followed by the adventure animation Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of
3: Were Rabbit. I remember The Fog because it was starring Tom Welling. And he's a a favorite of mine for sure. So the setting for today's case is Oceanside, California, which is somewhere I'm very familiar with as I lived part of my life in northern San Diego when I was growing up. So very familiar with Oceanside. It's situated on the coast of Southern California in the city of around 174,000 people. And it's located about 37 miles north of San Diego and 80 miles south of Los Angeles. And it's the site of a former Spanish mission, Oside, as the locals used to call it. And it was popular with tourists thanks to its beaches and architecture, making it the ideal place for many people to have a vacation home. It's also home to the California Surf Museum and is a setting for the TV crime drama Animal Kingdom. And
2: we're fortunate today to not have one, but two first-degree guests. Glenn and Claudia live in the Tri-City area, which includes Oceanside. And after the couple married in the 1970s, they went on to have
3: two daughters who were two years apart. Their youngest daughter, Nicole, was born on September 20th, 1980 and grew up with her family in Cathedral City, not far from Palm Springs, by the way, that's my sister's birthday, and she's perfect. Oh. So honestly, great dates all around. Oh, yeah. So as a kid, Nicole was a vibrant, free spirit. She was active. She was creative. She was outgoing. And she loved drawing so much, her parents had to constantly touch up the paint on the walls.
0: As a child, she was delightful. She would bounce from one room to the next. It was her personality. She drew on everything, walls, concrete. She was a drawer.
1: She was on the swim team. She was in peer counseling. She played the
0: trumpet.
2: According to our parents, Nicole was lively and energetic, but had a stubborn streak and drove her car way too fast for their liking. Nicole was good-naturedly mischievous, and Glenn even had to nail her bedroom window screen shut so she wouldn't sneak out.
3: Classic dad move, you know? I know. <laughs> They're either taking doors off hinges or nailing windows shut. I, yeah. My My dad could probably relate. So... The loyal and fun-loving young woman was also a fan of musicians like Janis Joplin, The Doors, and Kurt Cobain. Excellent taste in music. Mm -hmm. And she was the kind of person people naturally warmed to, someone who could walk into a room and be best friends with anyone and everyone in five minutes.
1: She could walk into a room full of people, and she would know everybody's name, and she'd leave and have a nickname for everybody. (laughs) She wanted to be a hippie. Yeah, she had a hippie stage.
2: But more having a hippie soul, Nicole was a real empath with a big heart. And not just for her family and her friends, but for bigger social causes as well. And she wasn't just all talk. She actually did something about these things that really pulled at her heartstrings.
0: She loved us deeply, deeply, deeply.
1: She always had a heart for the homeless. Ever since she was a little girl, we'd go on vacations and we'd go through the bigger cities and there was a soup line. She'd want us to circle around the block because she had a heart for him. She would
0: ask us to go through the drive through and get food for the the ones she spotted. So we did.
2: When Nicole was around 20 years old, she followed her older sister, Donetta, and moved to the San Diego area. The pair were really, really close, and they were like two peas and a pod. They were as close as sisters could be, so much that their voices, inflections, and mannerisms were basically identical.
1: They were so close that... when they moved out on their own and they used to call me, I used to have to talk to them for a while because I didn't want them to know that I didn't know who I was talking to. (laughs) I used to have to wait and just like, until they made one mistake and I would know. And Nicole
3: loved life in San Diego. And as a young woman of just 20, she was figuring out what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. She developed an interest in nutrition and began taking classes at San Diego Mesa College while she explored the field. In July of 2004, a now 23-year-old Nicole, who was still living in Oceanside, met and started dating a new guy, and his name was Eric Nathaniel Marum, and he went by Nate. So he was born and raised in Napa with his older brother, and the 24-year-old at the time seemed to be going places. And after graduating from vintage high school in 1998, Nate got a scholarship to UCLA, which is no easy task. Where he'd maintained a near perfect GPA studying psychology, which again, not an easy field. And Jack went to UCLA. She can tell you that it's it's a very competitive school. Very competitive school. I
2: actually got a scholarship too, but I was studying art, so uh, <laughs> I think his classes were a little bit easier than mine. Right. So beyond that, Eric was also a talented athlete on the track team with dreams of qualifying for the Olympics one day. But at some point, things for him kind of just dropped off. And this kind of makes him seem like he kind of, you know, peaked in college when he was at UCLA.
3: You know, you either peak in high school, you peak in college, or you peak in your adult life. And (laughs) he was a college peaker. He was a college
2: peaker. And sometime after graduating in 2002, Nate kind of had no firm career plans. He was kind of just, you know, in limbo, sort of. And then inexplicably, the guy who had earned his impressive degree quietly moved to San Diego where he started working in construction as a concrete finisher. So nothing to do with his college degree.
1: He was a javelin thrower going out for the Olympics. And we met him once. Nicole brought him home. And then we took him to the party of some friends of us. And he stayed off by himself. And he's kind of like a loner. So
2: life continued as usual, even though Nicole and Nate were dating, she still hung out with her sister Dinetta all the time and had a great group of friends. In the summer of 2005, Glenn and Claudia decided to move a little bit closer to where their daughters were. They moved to Carlsbad, and this is the town next over from Oceanside. And obviously, everybody was really, really excited that they'd all be closer together.
1: We met him when we moved to the coast, and he helped us move in. We really didn't know him other than what Nicole would share with
3: us. Glenn and Claudia were loving living close to their girls, but not long after they'd moved, one day in the fall of 2005, they opened their door to a nightmare, one that they still haven't quite woken up from. Nicole had been killed. And as someone who spoke at length to this couple, this devastated this family. And the scenario they Described when they learned the news as something I wouldn't wish for anyone. So, obviously, you all have the same questions we do. What happened? Why? How could this happen? And we're going to answer all those questions for you, but we're going to go back. One of the main reasons Glenn and Claudia Sinkyul moved to their Carlsbad home in 2005 was because of a growing sense of unease they had about their daughter. And her relationship with her boyfriend, Nate. While Nicole didn't reveal much, Glenn sensed a change in his daughter. And when he tried to discuss it with her, the only thing Nicole said was that Nate was mean to her. She was vague. But she also assured her family that she could handle the problems
2: that they were having. So what exactly was going on behind the scenes? So it turns out back in high school, even before Nate got to college, he started drinking, using drugs, and this included cocaine, weed, mushrooms, heroin, and tranquilizers, shoplifting, and drinking, and driving. And while he was never caught or prosecuted for any of this, none of it is great. And by the time he got to UCLA, he began selling drugs, and his continued drug use would ultimately cost him his scholarship. After graduating, Nate began to sink into a bad crowd, and his drug use intensified.
1: The time he was 16 to 25, he had four months of sobriety in the outside world. It turns
3: out San Diego wasn't the first city Nate tried to put roots down in after graduating college. In fact, Nate had followed his college girlfriend Marissa to Utah first. The problem was Marissa didn't actually want him to follow her there. Even worse. Marissa had intentionally moved out of state to Utah, specifically in an attempt to get away from Nate. So angry at Marissa's decision to break up with him, one day Nate got so angry he became violent and started throwing things around Marissa's apartment. Terrified, as anyone would be, she fled to a friend's place, but Nate followed her there. Thankfully, that was the end of it, and eventually Nate got the message and moved back to California in 2003, and Marissa successfully separated from him.
2: By February of the following year, Nate started smoking meth. Then five months later, Nate met Nicole during a night out, and the sparks just seemed to fly super, super quickly. So Nicole drank alcohol socially herself, but she wasn't a drug user at all. And Nate didn't try to hide his meth use from his new girlfriend, who, like so many women do, feel like they can genuinely help someone kick their drug habit through love and
1: support. She did have an empathetic heart, and That's what got her in trouble. She wanted to rescue everybody, and she's seen the best in them, and is that magical thinking. Despite Nicole wanting to believe the best of her
3: boyfriend, Nate was not making choices consistent with someone interested in recovery, and things soon became unsafe and dangerous for Nicole. Then, one night in September of 2004, Nate went to the restaurant where Nicole was working. He'd been smoking meth for several
2: days and tried to physically drag Nicole out of the restaurant before being stopped by her co-workers. Nate ran away and jumped into the San Diego Bay to hide from the cops, but the police recovered him, and he was arrested and convicted of false imprisonment, domestic violence, battery, and resisting arrest, and placed on probation.
1: He stalked her in her workplaces, tried to drag her out. The police were called. He jumped in the bay in San Diego, tried to kick out the police window.
3: After Nate's arrest, he was seemingly mortified. He was apologetic. He was like, I can't believe I did this. He swore up and down to Nicole that he'd never treat her like this again and vowed to change. But if this sounds familiar, it is because this is just part of a cycle that Nate really had no true intention of breaking and it would have been his responsibility to do so like this is a very abusive cycle you act like that you mortify you hurt a person you quote unquote love you promise a change and then you don't really mean it
2: and then the following month in october of 2004 nicole was at our oceanside apartment when nate who was high attempted to gain access by breaking a window and climbing inside The cops were called and pepper sprayed Nate, who was kicking at Nicole's door and struggling
3: violently as officers attempted to restrain him. Nate was taken to a hospital for treatment for cuts that he sustained during this incident, but he escaped and ran back to Nicole's, where cops had to tase him. As a result, Nate pleaded guilty to vandalism and felony possession of meth and received a three-year probationary sentence. This time, Nicole was granted an order of protection, with Nate instructed not to go anywhere near her. But just two months later, Nate again smashed
2: a window of Nicole's apartment from the outside. Nicole was thankfully at work when this happened. And when police arrived, they found him high and passed out in the guest bedroom with three and a half grams of meth and $5,600 in cash on him. Nate was arrested for meth possession, being under the influence, and for vandalism. And again, Nate pleaded guilty to vandalism and felony possession of meth.
3: So like many women with an abusive partner, Nicole didn't want to say much to her loved ones about what was going on. And a lot of women feel shame and fear and have been subjected to a length of emotional manipulation prior to when this abuse begins. And again, like so many women, Nicole thought she could handle it. And with enough love and patience, Nate would hopefully get on top of his addiction. Nate would change. And that's what he told her he was going to do and said that, you know, his addiction was the reason for his violent behavior. And Nicole even confided in her mom on a couple of occasions and said that while Nate manipulated her more than anyone in her life, she still loved him. So obviously, you know, she's someone who's wanting to try to help this person and has empathy for this person and is sort of like a bleeding heart for Nate's situation. Right. And
2: manipulation is just one example of a key behavioral tactic that abusers use, like begging you to give them just one more chance and saying you're the only one that can help them. Other strategies abusers employ to avoid accountability include things like intentionally humiliating you only to justify it as just a joke or subjecting you to excessive criticism, which of course in reality is verbal abuse.
3: Right. And then they accuse you of being sensitive or being dramatic when you try to draw a boundary and explain that that's hurtful or damaging or you deserve better. Like, they're really good at it. It's
2: always, it's your reaction is your fault. It's not what they're actually doing to you.
3: You're crazy. Yeah. But we're (laughs) going to exclude the reaction. Why you're reacting like this.
2: You're crazy, you're too sensitive, you can't take a joke, et cetera, et cetera.
3: Right, so obviously what we're describing is gaslighting and these people, these abusers, they blame you for their inability to control their emotions and their behavior and they downplay and deny the abuse. They have unpredictable, intense mood swings. They make you feel like you're always walking on eggshells. They make you feel like you're crazy. And at the same time, they also isolate you from friends and family and monitor your contact with your support network which is what Nate did with Nicole. And other red flags
2: might include your partner damaging your personal property, which Nate was doing over and over again. And another one would be if your friends and family are expressing constant concern about your relationship. And people that are experiencing this abuse may minimize their experiences and seek to protect the abuser from consequences of their actions. And this is because the abuser turns to all different sorts of manipulative tactics intended to shift the blame for the conflict
3: at hand. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus, and I couldn't practice enough, and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's True Accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. By 2005, 25 year old Nate Marum had four separate arrests related to substance abuse or domestic violence against his girlfriend, Nicole. In March of that year, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to an additional three years probation on top of his existing probation. And the court implemented yet another protective order, but instead of Nate going to jail for breaching his probation, he was sentenced to drug treatment. The specifics of all of that aren't clear, but I'm going to take an educated guess and say he probably had a decent lawyer, funded by his family, who helped him get a slap on the wrist instead of something more serious.
2: And while Nicole was no doubt suffering as a result of Nate's behavior, the optimistic, kind, and sweet person that she was, she believed in giving Nate just another chance to turn things around. Only three months later in June, she asked the court to lift the protection orders. She claimed that Nate was rehabilitated and that she wanted to live with him. He'd been participating in drug treatment sessions and anti-domestic violence programs, which
3: she believed was really helping him. And like we said, Nicole was optimistic about Nate and his potential, But that sentiment wasn't shared with everyone connected to this situation. Even the judge was doubtful. He told Nicole, this could be a very dangerous time. I want to protect you. I don't want this to happen to you anymore. And Nicole apparently responded saying, drugs greatly influenced a lot of the actions that happened. We've worked through a lot of stuff. We've reflected on it and learned what we can and cannot do. We're just trying to move forward now. So. Nicole's empathy is admirable and inspiring and it prevailed in this situation. I mean, the judge believed her and she believed in Nate's ability to recover from this nightmare that he was.
2: And the judge actually said to Nicole, he said, if this is what you want, I'll grant the motion, but I also have great reservations because I'm seeing a pattern of behavior. And I think you're on pretty shaky ground. So sadly, many abusers who have protection orders against them often pressure their partners through all this love bombing and gaslighting and whatever to have such orders lifted. And this is what happened in Nicole's case. And it's a textbook part of the abuse cycle.
3: Right. But things between this young couple who are now living together, at first, I'm sure the love bombing continued, but it deteriorated quickly. In August of 2005, Nate wrote a note which he ripped up and left in Nicole's apartment. And the note said, go to Napa, get guns, return to San Diego, and murder Nicole. Okay. um, So terrified at finding this, Nicole moved out of their shared apartment and in with her sister, Danetta. She was actually done with Nate, and she was committed to moving forward without him. She wanted out of this relationship. She didn't feel safe with him, and she saw that he was not a stable, trustworthy person. But as an empathetic person, she wrestled with her conscience constantly as he tried to manipulate and guilt trip her. And as someone who has been susceptible to that my entire life, I can empathize because guilt is the most powerful manipulative tool people who make you feel bad for how they're feeling, if you're a person who's receptive to that, which Nicole was, right—that that is a very powerful motivator. I mean, just now am I learning how to not let that control my, my actions, you know? right? Um, and I'm sure a ton of people listening to this can, can resonate with that, where it's like, imagine a parent guilt-tripping you. I only have a couple good years left. <laughs> or whatever they say to hurt you, to be like, wow pulling out my heartstrings gonna yeah. do it. I mean, that's what he was doing. That's it's a powerful tool.
2: Well, and she Nicole also is just like the perfect victim for somebody like, uh, you know, bordering on like psychopathic having no empathy, very manipulative, like her having this like this over empathetic heart is just like it's it's the perfect victim for somebody like that. And it's really heartbreaking.
3: Absolutely, like she's a person who wanted to help the homeless and wanted to help whoever. And it's like someone who's convinced you to love them—they'll just use this like amazing quality as they'll use the one they'll love bomb you and be like, use the guilt tactics. Like that shit really works, and it's a very manipulative. Like it's crazy, and you know it never should have happened.
2: So the following month, Nicole actually got her own bungalow-style apartment on North Nevada Street in Oceanside only four blocks from the beach. like Sounds fucking amazing, to be honest. And she gave her neighbors the heads up about Nate, and she told them that she was scared of him. But Nate wouldn't relent. He kept trying to penetrate the walls and the boundaries that she kept trying to lay down. And eventually, Nicole gave in, and she
3: allowed Nate to stay there on and off to keep some of his stuff in the apartment with her. So meanwhile, like we said earlier, Glenn and Claudia had moved To Carl's bed, which is close to where Nicole and Danetta were living. They were nearby, and this was meant to be a super happy time, but they were all worried about Nicole and they were worried about this man in her life. And everyone suspected there was abuse, but they couldn't coax much out of her. And she was an independent woman in her mid-20s, right? They didn't want to be too overbearing. And Because if you are, people just wall you out. And she's an adult. You can't, they can't treat her like she's a kid. Well, it's super delicate. We talk about this with friends sometimes. If your friend's in a shitty situation, it's like you have to be tactful because if you're too critical, they will just push you out of their lives. Yeah. Then you can't help them at all, right? So they were doing their best to navigate that. And Nicole's also responsible. She was supporting herself. She had this apartment. She was working hard. She had goals. So they were like, we don't want to pry too much. You got this. You know, you seem like you have it. And we also don't want to throw you off where you're then walling us out of your life.
2: So, then on the night of October 15th, Nicole was at her parents' place with some of their friends. And at the time, she was in a cast because she had broken a left foot when she was riding her bike on her 25th birthday just a few weeks earlier. So, at her parents' house, everybody was having a really good time. There was pizza, there was drinks, there was good times, and everybody was actually signing
3: her cast at the party. Right. And then around 11 p.m. that night, Nate showed up at the gathering. And I'm not sure what took place once he got there, but eventually he was just hell-bent on getting Nicole home. And parents noticed that her disposition shifted once he arrived. And she got a lot more subdued, and she became the opposite of her normal bubbly self. It turns out Nate was high that night. He'd been on a four-day meth binge, and he hadn't slept. So... Glenn and Claudia are like, we already don't like you. You're not coming in. You know, they were like, this is a bad idea. You're fucked up. We already are sketched out by you, whatever. And Nicole didn't leave with him. And Nate ended up leaving by himself. So everybody was on the same page about this, including Nicole. And after this all happened and Nate left, Claudia drove her daughter home a couple hours later And remember, at this point, Nicole had kicked Nate out and already had moved into
2: her own apartment. However, Claudia was really, really concerned that Nate would show up at Nicole's place, so she stayed with her daughter for a couple of hours just to play it safe. And at this point, Claudia and some of Nicole's neighbors, including this guy named Ted, spoke with Nicole about her risk to her safety as long as Nate was in her life. Nicole decided there and then that she was going to end it for good, for real this time. And Claudia was obviously super relieved, and she helped her daughter move Nate's things in boxes and out on the front porch for him to collect at some point.
3: So, Claudia leaves. It's probably really late at night. But before doing so, she asked Ted, hey, if Nate shows up, give me a call if anything out of the ordinary occurs. She kissed Nicole on the cheek and told her how much she loved her. And only a half an hour later, Ted called Claudia because Nate was there arguing with Nicole
2: about his stuff being out on the front porch. Claudia immediately dialed 911 and officers responded, but because Nicole told them that nothing physical had occurred, they just left without any further intervention or arrest. Nicole relented and let Nate put his stuff back inside her apartment, but then he took off super angry.
3: Right, and it turns out that same night that Nate
1: had also gone to Nicole's sister's house. They lived blocks away from each other, and he was at her bedroom window that same night, and someone chased him away. She was afraid to get out of bed.
2: So back in Nicole's, she and her neighbor Ted sat on the porch and he sat with Nicole in case Nate ended up returning. And she seemed really sad about the whole entire situation, but also really fearful that Nate would come back. She understandably didn't want to be by herself, and she stayed awake as best she could until 4 a.m. when she couldn't keep her eyes open any longer and finally went inside to go to bed.
3: So the neighbor, Ted, eventually returned to his own apartment, but he kept watch out the window for Nate. And unfortunately, Nate did, in fact, come back. And when Ted saw him, he exited his own apartment and approached Nate and offered him a drink, hoping to diffuse tension and keep him calm. But somehow things did move inside the apartment. Who knows how? But the belief is that the front door to the apartment wasn't locked. So Nate just kind of went inside. And apparently Ted followed him, like out of fear for Nicole's safety Then Ted says that he saw Nate at some point pull a hammer out of his jacket and set it down. But he was trying to be inconspicuous. Nate had hid this hammer under the couch. And then he sits down to chat with Ted. And Nate's trying to be kind of like casual about it. And Ted's weirded out. And according to
2: Ted, things seemed pretty calm. And at one point, he went back to his apartment to grab a cigarette. But when he went back to Nicole's five minutes later, the door was locked. So Ted knocked on the door and eventually Nate opened it and came outside where the two men drank on the porch for about an hour. But every 10 to 15 minutes or so, Nate would go back inside and Ted would hear movement inside the apartment.
3: So obviously, given the context of the whole evening, given the fact that Claudia had been there earlier or whatever, Ted knew there was tension going on between... Nicole and Nate and he assumed that Nate was throwing Nicole's property around inside right like he knew there was abuse he knew everyone was afraid but that's what he thought that noise was that he was maybe on some level monitoring the situation but had never considered the idea that it could escalate right and at some point when Ted yelled out to Nate to ask what he was doing in there Nate poked his head outside to look at Ted But he didn't actually respond. He just ducked back inside. And after about an hour of this, Ted forced his way inside the apartment to see what was happening for himself. And in Nicole's bedroom, he saw Nate holding a hammer standing next to the bed. And on the bed,
2: it was Nicole. And she was covered in blood, as was much of her bedroom. So Ted calmly told Nate that he'd be right back. And he ran home and called the police.
1: He stalked her and waited because she was sleeping. She had a broken leg, a broken foot. She was drinking a week before something. It fell off her brand new bike. And she had a cast. She would have fought back if she was awake. At 4.45
3: a.m., three hours after their first visit to Nicole's apartment, police returned in response to Ted's 911 call. Nicole had been struck by this hammer many times. The whole scene, uh, it was devastating, And I'm not going to get into the details because they're not important. Uh, But no one should ever suffer what Nicole suffered, especially at the hands of someone who kept claiming to love her.
1: It's overwhelming. This guy is such a monster that on the autopsy, it says that they had to take the, the brain matter that was stuck in her hair. They had to take it out. There's worse than that, but she was so defenseless. She awoke after that first hit. And um, I just hope that that was just nerves doing that. And it wasn't that she was aware. You know how if something traumatic happens to you, it's like your body's in shock. She hit her so hard that um, they found urine stains on her underwear and her blue jeans. You know how hard he had to hit her to do that. Who in their right mind does something like that? with somebody sleeping.
2: So, this wasn't a case of who done it. The police knew exactly who the monster was that they were looking for, and they tracked Nate down in his car 4 miles away and arrested him. During his police interview, Nate stated that after leaving Nicole's, he took the hammer from his toolbox and returned intending to kill his girlfriend. And while Ted was getting his cigarettes, Nate used the opportunity to go inside, lock the door and start the brutal assault.
3: And Nate told investigators he would thought about killing Nicole for some time, having even previously written it down on several occasions. Remember, Nicole found some evidence of that. And that was the catalyst for her to to really break things off with him. Like she sensed she was in danger and she she wanted out of the situation. It was
2: only hours later that Glenn and Claudia received the sickening news. Glenn knew something had happened before the officers at his door even said a word. He planned he, it.
1: He, he planned it. We had to go in, and her, Danetta's best friend, she went and cleaned up Nicole's room. And then Glenn and I and Glenn's sister and niece, we went over after that was done to move her furniture. And I went in Nicole's bedroom, and uh, I knelt down, and, and the carpet had soaked up her blood in It was on my hands, and I couldn't move. Lynn came in and took me in the bathroom and washed my hand, and we watched her blood go down the drain. That was my last last touch of life. Three days later,
3: Nate was arraigned in court and pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder. He was held without bond. If convicted, he was facing 26 years to life in prison. Nicole's murder was the first homicide stemming from an active domestic violence case in the city attorney's office for five years. And there was no question there had been an abject failure of the system in protecting Nicole, and all of those involved now had to face the music. And while awaiting trial in early November, the city attorney's office ordered a full review of the two domestic violence cases their office had prosecuted against Nate, and everyone who had been involved was required to participate.
2: For Nicole's family, the pain of the judicial process was unspeakably traumatizing. They wanted answers as to why officers responding to the first 911 call didn't remove Nate, given his history with Nicole, because the fact that she reported no assault at the time just did not cut it. The unimaginable pain of Nicole's loss caused serious health issues for both Glenn and Claudia, who experienced regular panic attacks and often missed work due to
1: her overwhelming grief. My heart was broken. I had a heart attack. They came and got me and put me in the hospital, and they wanted to keep me for evaluation.
3: Only two months after Nicole's murder, not knowing where to put their grief, Glenn and Claudia were driven to establish a nonprofit foundation in Nicole's name. And the couple wanted to keep Nicole's memory alive by helping others and make her legacy mean something by establishing the Nicole Sinkule Foundation to help other victims of domestic violence, which is something Glenn and Claudia refer to. As a silent killer. And I really do think that's an incredible description of what domestic violence is. It doesn't matter how vivacious or confident seeming someone is, they could be in the throes of something like this and you might not even know it. This is a really great metaphor for how so many women and victims, survivors, et cetera, suffer in silence out of fear, or shame, and the hope they can somehow love their partner enough that they won't engage in violence, which of course is never how it works with abusers. They are as damaged and as fucked up as they are. There's nothing we can do to love them enough to not be dangerous.
1: Most people, they don't talk about it. They think they can deal with it. As far as Nicole, she seemed a little bit of good in him at times. And that she had this magical thinking that with enough help, he could be that person, which he could never be that person. He wasn't that person before she met him. He wasn't that person with his ex-girlfriend before. He wasn't with her or his parents. He wasn't that way with anybody. He failed everything on the outside world. She seduced her mind, and she was gullible. She wanted to
0: make him a better person, because that's just how Nicole was. She saw potential, something little that maybe she could build on, and uh, that was her heart. Uh, She died for love.
2: Glenn and Claudia hit the ground running and got to work despite their overwhelming grief and heartbreak, aiming to assist in bringing awareness to the fact that domestic violence can happen to anyone. The foundation aims to offer practical solutions for those in domestic violence situations, educating the community about what to look for, how trauma related guilt can prevent survivors from reporting, and how to implement a safety plan. Glenn and Claudia made it their mission to stop the same thing happening to any other woman, sharing Nicole's story with community groups, churches, schools, and other nonprofits to break down the wall of shame that surrounds domestic violence.
3: And obviously, this whole thing has been especially hard on Nicole's sister, Donetta, who understandably couldn't bring herself to even be in the same room as the man who murdered her sister as part of this judicial process. I mean, they were best friends. This This rocked her world. And I know. I mean, I have two sisters. I'd never be the same. So, Danetta, I mean, I empathize deeply, and I, I don't blame you. This is this is soul crushing shit, and losing your sister under these circumstances is devastating.
1: We had to go to Folsom Prison, and Danetta, she was in a separate room and talked over a speaker, so she didn't have to face him, and she could she could turn it off anytime.
2: We mentioned that Glenn and Claudia suffered health setbacks following Nicole's murder, and sadly, Danetta was also profoundly impacted. She's been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety, and insomnia. But she also struggled in her relationships with men because of the level of betrayal that her sister experienced. Sleep should come as a blessed relief for those suffering from trauma, but not for Danetta, who is terrified to close her eyes at the end of each day, given her little sister was murdered in her sleep.
1: She has nightmares every night. She's afraid for her life. We could have lost both of them that night. It's taken her 16 years to deal with any of this and even come close to Glenn and I because we changed. Everything changed. We call it point zero because that's, that's when we say everything changed.
3: To add insult to injury, Nate's parents, who you'd think would reach out to apologize or something, you would think, said
1: nothing. After Nicole was murdered, they sent us a check for five hundred dollars. We gave it to domestic violence shelter. It felt like blood money.
3: So the idea that they would send the Sinkiewicz family, Claudia and Glenn, a five hundred dollar check makes me fucking sick. Oh my um, god! You cannot put a, a price a tag, tag price on somebody's tag? fucking life on or on your grief in like the hole in your life that is created at their with their loss, and it's like. I would be, I would have rather had heard nothing than receive a $500 check. You're monetizing, like, it's like, you think $500 is going to do shit? Like, that helps with a bear. First of all, doesn't a burial these days, forget it. It's thousands and thousands of dollars. But your insignificant fucking contribution adds insult to injury. And it makes me, when they told me that, Claudia and Glenn, I know you're going to listen to this, I connected and bonded and love both of you so much. It made me so fucking angry. Like for what they'd already suffered. Yeah. I couldn't fucking believe it. I was like, I cannot believe you would offer five hundred dollars as like a sympathy offering. Like fuck yourself. Send that to your no. son's commissary. It's uh it's one of the most disgusting things I've heard I in hate a it. long fucking time. Bad. In September of 2006, a week before Nate's trial was due to commence for the brutal murder of Nicole, almost a year earlier, he struck a plea deal. The now 26-year-old pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, and he would face 16 years to life in prison. And at Nate's sentencing in February of the following year, the judge was deeply critical of the system that had allowed Nicole to be placed at such risk— He said the criminal
2: justice system was unable to
3: convince Nicole to get as far away
2: as possible from him. We as a society have let Nicole down. This is a case study on the devastating effects of domestic violence. And as for Nate, according to the KESQ News, the deputy DA felt that there was no remorse due to the killer's flat affect
3: and emotionalist presentation. Nate blamed his drug use for his withdrawn personality, his social awkwardness, and his exposure to toxic dynamics between his parents. And he also said he felt his mother was domineering and critical. And he vowed no woman would ever treat him the way she treated his father.
1: They moved schools or something. And he walked in on his mom and dad and she was belittling his father. And ever since that time, he's going to control women. Then he had to use drugs and alcohol because of his antisocial personality. They were his only friends.
2: Nate was convicted and received the maximum sentence of 16 years to life with no possibility of appeals. But unfortunately, he would eventually
3: be eligible for parole, but Glenn and Claudia vowed to fight this every day, all the way. So we've only briefly mentioned Nate's family background thus far, but it also adds a kind of confusing element to the context of this case. So before Nate got into drugs in his late teens, he actually had a pretty stable childhood with no abuse or drug or alcohol issues in the home. Which is why it's so bizarre yet tragic that despite having every advantage in the world, Nate not only threw it all away, but did the fucking worst thing anyone can do, did the unthinkable. And from Glenn and Claudia's perspective, the Marims, obviously Nate's family, effectively washed their hands of Nate. That is, until it came to financially funding his defense which is kind of ironic when you find out what kind of work Nate's parents are in.
1: He comes from an educated family. Both the parents have psychology degrees, but the father's a retired psychologist, and he dealt and he ran classes for domestic violence and anger management. They enabled him his whole life, and they lost control. When they couldn't control him anymore, they dumped him on Nicole. They were working through Nicole. They were in Napa Nicole was with him, and they were calling her and telling her to do this and telling her to do that. When he was done with Nicole, that was it. He said he was going to kill her.
0: They have money. I think they must be feeding him money because he's having protection in there, we believe.
1: He said that they are giving him finances, but he's paying for his lawyers.
2: So, Nate went to prison, but then in 2019, 30-year-old Nate became eligible for parole, and he'd since been diagnosed with a personality disorder. But despite his contrition, the board had concerns about his lack of insight and the risk he continued to pose to the community. He was denied the opportunity to apply for parole again for another five years. At that first parole hearing, Nate shared his version of the events that had transpired on the day that he murdered Nicole, and her parents were in hell. The first
1: hearing, he told us everything because I guess he thought he could get out if he told us everything.
3: But Nate petitioned to advance his next hearing. So he next came up for review again in November of 2021, just two years later. Like, think of Nicole's family having to do this again. My God. And this was unexpected for them. And they don't want to listen to Nate deny the abuse and the physical and verbal abuse that he subjected nicole to and also his previous relationships like they didn't want to listen to this because obviously that's all lies he abuses ex marissa the same one who had tried to move to utah to escape him but nate would ultimately admit that on the night he committed the brutal savage murder of nicole he went back to nicole's apartment with the intention of killing her And he added, though, that he was now very remorseful of his actions, which doesn't do shit to comfort Nicole's family, frankly. Right. And he claimed that domestic violence
2: awareness classes that he'd taken in prison changed his perspective and helped him understand why his behavior was wrong. He stated his abuse tendencies were a result of a complex that he had about being controlled, but now he swore he's a changed man. However, much to Nicole's family's profound disappointment, he instead chose to focus on his drug use as the precursor to the murder. So instead of focusing on his abuse and his violence towards Nicole as the reason why he murdered her, he instead tried to focus on his drug use as the reason why he did everything that he did.
3: Right. He wasn't willing to be like, I'm a piece of shit. And that's why. He's like, drugs, 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 the drug's
1: fault. Yeah, totally. In the beginning, the first hearing, he got five more years. And within two and a half years, he was up for parole again. So the second time, he said he didn't want to talk about the crime in front of in front of us. He said, I don't want to talk about it. Then it's washed away. Just look at my, my good things I did in prison and forget about everything. They've got to look at some of his past. His parents said, They said he changed. He's rehabilitated. Well, you know what? He was still using. He was still using in jail. In making their decision, the parole
3: board considered Nate's disciplinary free prison record, and they considered his participation in prison programs and a relatively promising psychiatric evaluation. And after mulling things over, the board granted Nate parole. I'm sure you're all like we are and like the Syncules were. Stunned at this revelation. They were horrified. This is their worst nightmare realized, right? But more importantly, they were terrified for the next woman who might cross Nate's path. They didn't want another family to experience the nightmare they had been experiencing. And they didn't believe for a second that Nate had developed any insight into the underlying reasons for the horrific, disgusting, vile acts he committed. They believe that he remained a risk for women in society. And as a woman who lives in Southern California, within proximity to this man, I tend to agree. This man does not appear to be rehabilitated. This man does appear to be a danger to society. But yet, despite acknowledging the
2: horrific and aggravating nature of the crime, the board ultimately determined that Nate no longer posed an unreasonable risk to the community. It's fucking insane. Terrifying.
3: As a woman, like, I bet you the parole board's all men, frankly. And it's like, yeah, of course, you're like, well, let's give this man another chance. It's like, why? Because you're not afraid of him because you're a man? and you would want yeah. another chance, fuck you. Yeah, he's probably fine. I feel like I can sleep at night having this man free roaming the streets. <laughs> yeah, you probably don't have daughters or wives or whatever, but, like, I don't feel good about this. Yeah. Well, and then they said that a re- big reason
2: was because he was young when it was happening, so that's nice.
3: 24 is not young. I'm that's sorry. not young. It's young for, like being ancient like you don't have crow's feet or whatever but your brain is almost developed and it's like you're not that young 16 would be young that's why you're
2: it's not like you're a teenager you're an adult you're You're almost 30
3: you're almost 30 if you have this weird drive to be violent towards women who draw boundaries with you you shouldn't be around women which means you should be in jail Something that was also coming up during this whole situation with this possible parole, there were some post-release goals he had, and they were the things of fantasy. So Nate actually told the board that he wanted to write a Netflix series, a screenplay, and win a Pulitzer Prize and potentially an Oscar. He also wanted to go hunting with his dad, despite knowing he would never be able to own or hold a firearm. Holy shit, fucking balls. Holy shit. No, 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 no. The arrogance, the narcissism, the grandiose. delusion,
2: my God. The delusion.
3: It's like, you want to win an Oscar, you want a you Pulitzer? <laughs> Garbage sociopaths who take the lives of innocent women don't win Pulitzers. Like, you are a scumbag. Yeah. And you need to know your role before you're ever let out near anyone. Again, this makes me so mad that he was granted parole. I can't fucking believe it. That's and I'm sorry man. for my cursing. Like, but this is a man who spouted off this delusional shit to a parole board. And they're like, yeah, this sounds good. Let him out. And this is a state we live in. We live in California. We live an hour and 20 minutes from this jurisdiction. It makes me very uneasy. Yeah. It doesn't
2: sound like something not like great. a California thing to do. No. No. So Glenn and Claudia again were horrified by the prospect of Nate walking the streets as are we. So they focused on appealing to the California state governor Gavin Newsom to reverse the parole decision. They started an online petition and reached out to local news outlets to garner support and thankfully all of their hard work paid off when in March of 2022 just 1 year ago, Governor Newsom reversed the board's decision citing Nate's pattern of violent behavior with Nicole and stating Nate must do more to show that he won't be a danger to women.
3: Fuck yeah, Newsom. I know you're not perfect. No one's perfect. But this was a good fucking call. Every politician kind of sucks. But this was a good call. Yes. And I'm I'm really not a politically active person. And Newsom, who knows? But this was a good call. And that's all I give a shit about, frankly, because this decision this time around had been made by the governor. And under California law, Nate would be required to have his next hearing no later than 18 months. And that is like the bummer about this. Because again, think about the synchials in their experience. Like they get an 18 month respite from having to fight again, right? So they won the battle, but the war is never going to be over. And this seems so unfair given what they've already been put through.
1: Then we appealed it and. we had just a, a short time three months or something to take it to the governor which we did and the governor found that he was not fit to come out yet when the governor makes the reversal the inmate gets 18 months to try again and the commissioner said that that was a fair way to do it otherwise they could turn around and appeal it right away so That's supposed to be fair, 18 months. But nothing's really been fair. Nate appealed to the governor's
2: decision to the appellate court of California, but thankfully it didn't get anywhere. But 18 months is virtually no time at all. So how is that fair to the victim's families?
1: If he gets recommended parole again, then we have to go to the governor again and hope that it will be reversed. If the governor doesn't reverse it, then they're out. They're out on the streets.
0: Yeah, they're moving
1: the goalposts further
3: and further. In California, an inmate's mandatory minimum sentence dictates when parole eligibility kicks in. In Nate's case, this was 2019, because he received a minimum of 16 years. And California is currently one of the most progressive states in the country when it comes to proactively reducing the incarceration rate through prison reform. And that's great, right? Because a lot of people are in jail and have long sentences for things like weed, right? That's legal now in California. So, yes, that's important to get people out of prisons who are serving time for things that are now legal. But there's a trade-off because you can't apply this, like, consideration for just certain inmates. And now victims of violent crimes and their families suffer because now parole eligibility has to kind of be sweeping to every inmate. And I'm not going to get into the specifics because it's boring. Either way, though, but when an inmate in California has done their time or served 85% of it for violent offenses, parole is kind of considered mandatory. It doesn't matter how brutal or um, horrific the case is, unless public safety is threatened. But that's a very abstract spectrum. <laughs> like, yeah. who's who's qualified to determine whether or not people are safe or unsafe around a person? You know, it's it's a crapshoot. And it's this aspect that's so problematic because of the ambiguity and how that's interpreted. And victims'
2: families do not deserve this stress and heartache. And a key reason why the Sincules are still so outraged is because to this day, they feel like Nate still hasn't taken full accountability of his actions. He continues to blame his actions on his addiction to drugs.
0: That's another strong feeling of mine, too. He's being productive in prison. He's making... Things work for other prisoners, and so he should stay where he's being productive because he is evil out here in the world. As
3: ugly and devastating as meth and addiction can be and is, it's a fact that most addicts don't hurt people. Most alcoholics don't hurt people. Most heroin addicts don't hurt people, right? Like, most people addicted to drugs just hurt themselves. Yet, Nate uses it as an excuse to distance himself from his abuse of Nicole and his murder and disgusting, abhorrent acts towards Nicole and his generally shitty attitude towards women. And he still hasn't been able to explain the nature and extent of the violence he inflicted on this innocent woman who was just sleeping.
1: He's got a B.A. in psychology on the wrong road, and he used drugs. He's still using that excuse why he killed Nicole because of a drug psychosis. He's been diagnosed with an amphetamine alcohol and cannabis use disorder for substance abuse. He was not diagnosed with a mental health disorder, but was diagnosed with a personality disorder, other specific... Specified personality disorders with antisocial and borderline features. They're saying all this behavior is okay because in prison he passed self-therapy tests, one with anger management, one with domestic violence or something like that, but he passed self-therapy tests and he's a good boy. He's manipulating the whole system.
2: It's been a long road for Glenn and Claudia. And beyond wanting Nate to stay behind bars for taking their daughter from them, they're also very, very worried that if Nate gets out, he'll be a danger to any woman that he becomes romantically involved with.
0: This is our whole life. You know, we're not desperate chickens anymore. I'm in my 70s.
1: I truly, truly, truly believe in my heart that he will hurt again. And I can't shake the feeling that he might even hurt his mother. He has contempt for women. Let me add that. Yes.
3: Today, things for Glenn and Claudia have been transformative, but extremely painful. But despite all the anguish, this inspiring couple has not only stayed united, but stayed together, which is such a testament to their incredible personal strength, as well as that of their marriage and family, when so many couples in similar circumstances
0: don't make it. 90 percent don't stay together something like that
1: we didn't choose to be where we're at but we do have a choice either to sit and dwell in it or to take it and help others so they don't have to sit in it that's what we we've chosen to do and i just didn't want people to forget and forget what happened and back then we didn't have all this social media we do now but you know i'm making my voice heard and glenn's making his voice heard he's he sometimes just steps back and lets me do all the talking but we're in it together it doesn't go away you know we live with it every day some days it's triggering like things that we don't think about every day i think about her every day most days i miss her a lot 43 year
2: old nate's next pearl hearing is this year may 31st of 2023 that's just two months away and the sinkholes are ready to confront him once again
1: I've read the autopsy papers. And guess what else? I'm going to read them to him in this next hearing because he's going to know what he did.
3: And this is where Glenn and Claudia need your help and our help in their fight to keep their daughter's killer behind bars where he belongs. And frankly, I need your help. (laughs) Jack needs your help. As two women living in Southern California, as someone who grew up the next town over, like this man should not be out. He is a fucking danger to women everywhere. (laughs) Nicole was asleep. This was not a confrontational situation. This was not like a second degree heat of passion. This woman had a broken foot and was asleep. And this man did this to her. So... The Sincuels are appealing for signatures on their current online petition, urging the California Board of Parole Hearings to deny Nate's upcoming parole application. So we're going to include links to all of the relevant websites, including the Nicole Sincuel Foundation, as well as contact information that you need to reach out directly to both the California Board of Parole Hearings and Governor Gavin Newsom by letter and by email. But more importantly, we can send letters directly to the Sincuels.com who will help aggregate all of that and, and use it to help keep their, you know, daughter's killer, this psychopath behind bars. And we should all be fighting for that. And we're going to put all the information you need in our show notes, links, email addresses. We we got you, but please do this. You know, um, this couple who I feel profoundly connected to because of the pain they're in, like, we have to help. This guy cannot get out. And these two are working so hard. This is their life's mission. So it's, it would mean the world if you could, you know, do the extra step, do the extra thing and help them.
1: We just kind of make a noise. If he does get out, what kind of
0: society are we that we see brutal mutation of another human being and we give them a second chance to come out and be good or whatever. It doesn't work that way. If we let them out it's a big black mark on our society because what does that say about us?
1: I don't know where God's leading us, you know, but I yeah. just know we gotta, we gotta take a stand and if, you know, if you don't say nothing, nothing gets done. Nicole was completely
3: defenseless when she was killed, and the effects for her family are not only lifelong, they're not only traumatizing, it's soul-crushing. I mean, this is the purpose of this family now. All Nicole did was implement a boundary, only to be killed for it. And Glenn and Claudia are incredible parents who want to honor their daughter's legacy, but they can't trust the justice system to make the appropriate decisions, which is so important given Nate's history. Yes, he's only killed once, but even before that, he was a repeat violent offender against women. Despite learning a lot of key buzzwords and participating in the right programs to tick all the boxes in his favor while he's in prison, we cannot trust that Nate has internalized what he claims he's learned because there's nothing meaningful to suggest he's actually changed. What we do know is that abusers like Nate reemerge to re-terrorize women all over again, causing more pain, leaving more parole boards with blood on their hands, and more shattered families to pick up the pieces. So we can't stand by with this. Nate's got to stay in jail. And Nicole means something, and this is important to everybody. So all of you, we're giving you the info. We're going to encourage you to help us keep Nate behind bars.
2: a huge thank you to Glenn and Claudia for being our first degrees for this case, sharing their story. I know it's fucking so so hard so we thank you so much for your vulnerability and we will do everything that we can on our end to keep this monster behind bars and again like Lex says we hope that everybody else out there will as well if you are listening uh and have a story to tell please email us hello at the first podcast.com you can follow us on instagram join us on facebook we're tra- talking true crime all the time join our patreon for bonus episodes and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed
3: everything jack said and claudia and glenn you keep fighting the good fight we got you and uh you know everybody listening thank you for being here and only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but not that close Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for the first degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are the Nicole Sinkiel Foundation, Domestic The University of Berkeley, California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, PrisonPolicy.org, CrimeOnline.com, ABC News, The New York Times Magazine, Public Policy Institute of California, CBS8, the Napa Valley Register. KESQ News and the San Diego Union Tribune. And as always,
1: our first three guests is always our largest source.